So as I mentioned, if you haven't, go over to Job. We're going to be in chapter 11 as we continue our series of God is Good. So this morning we'll be covering chapter 11. And, uh, and I want, as you're kind of flipping there, as we're kind of getting started, I want you to think back over the past couple weeks at how many times you have your cell phone or your life has been interrupted by a phone number that you did not recognize. Can't we agree that's probably happened, right? You get a phone call and, uh, and you look at the number and if you're like most people, if they don't recognize the number, they're like, ah, I'm not going to answer that. You see, we, uh, uh, at one point, it would, uh, the phone, the home phone would ring. Teenagers, we had phones at our home. It's pretty cool. Um, it, you would call the home instead of the cell phone, and it would interrupt dinner. Now you have these telemarketer calls that will call and interrupt our day, and uh, um, very few things are more, as, more frustrating than having your day interrupt. I know I'm probably not the only one that has grown more and more hesitant to answer a number that I do not recognize. Um, I'm also probably not the only one that's grown more hesitant knowing that the person that I do not know that's calling me on my phone more than likely wants to talk about my car's extended warranty, right? I'm not sure what your experiences have been with telemarketers, but my wife claims that I have an amazing gift of making a telemarketer so frustrated that they will hang up on me in a heartbeat. For example, uh, there's one time, actually it's happened multi, uh, multiple times, actually one time Pastor Chris was in my car. Uh, there have been several other times at, the, at our house. I'll get a phone call, don't recognize it, so I'll answer the number. And then I'm informed that I have won a trip. You guys know that phone? You, you, you've won this vacation. You've, you've won a flight to this location. All you have to do is... I don't know, because at that point, I'm already yelling, like, we won, baby, we did it. Go pack the bags. And, uh, and then we just kind of grow and grow and grow, and we call, and I just, the, the celebration becomes bigger and bigger until the point that they just hang up the phone. Another, this is, I mean, this is some solid parenting tip right now, okay? I mean, if you have a toddler, so one time I had a phone call, Hello? Hey, we would like to talk to you about whatever it is. I, said, I would love to. Emma was a little toddler at the time. She's learning how to talk. So I just handed the phone to her. And that baby just walked around the whole house, just blabbing the whole time. I don't know at what point they hung up on her, but they, they did. But I think probably, my, probably the most favorite moment that I have whenever I'm dealing with telemarketers has been the time that I, a telemarketer called and said, Hey, we have a survey we would love for you to complete. I said, I would love to. For every question you ask me, I get to ask one. That lasted three questions. Because the third question my wife reminded me was to confirm my address. And apparently it is unwelcomed to ask the telemarketer what their address was. So we just ended the phone, they ended the phone call immediately. You see, telemarketing calls I think they're, I mean, I think we can agree they are terrible. These calls uh, occur at the most inopportune times, it seems like. You know, at one, at one point, whenever it was the home phone, it would interrupt dinner, and now it interrupts all day long. They, they happen at inopportune times. And uh, either it's the same boring recording, whenever you answer the phone and you're supposed to go through the prompts, 
Or if you actually have the opportunity to talk to a person, the person is reading the exact same script they've been reading all day long, and they too have grown tired of their, uh, of their script. But the good news is if you don't answer, they'll leave you a voicemail of the same hurried message that they could not tell you, and uh, it just gets very few things are more annoying. You see, this morning as we dive into Job chapter 11, we see that the response, uh, we'll, we will read the response of Job's third friend, Zophar. And Zophar, uh, he was not a telemarketer. You know, they didn't have that technology at that point. But he, he was somewhat similar to a telemarketer. He was very, his response to Job is very insensitive, very gruff at times, and also very persistent. You see, he had the same message that Job's previous two friends had. And, uh, and they were working from the belief that the things that we covered at the beginning of this series that Job was enduring occurred because of Job's sin. You see, this morning our passage comes right after Job responds to one of the, one of the other friends uh, with their speech, and, and he gives a rather lengthy response speech back to him. So Zophar finds the angle in which to attack Job, which is where we, where we see in Job chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the Lord reads this way. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. And in verse 6, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding, knowing or knows uh, know that know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. I think it's safe that we can agree that Zophar um, will not be viewed as as Job's uh, greatest friend that he endured this uh, that he's endured during this traumatic experience. Very insensitive at times, very gruff, as I mentioned earlier. But we need to keep also in mind that this is uh, Zophar's first contribution um, to the debates that are surrounding Job. We know that Job has experienced tremendous loss. He sat in silence for seven days mourning his loss, and, and, uh, and during this time he endured his friend's criticism and his wife's encouragement to curse God and to die. So when Zophar joins the conversation he begins making cruel accusations against Job. You see, there are three word-related sins um, that are mentioned in this portion of our chapter this morning. So Zophar accuses Job of being long-winded. And we can agree that that's not a very, that's not, that's not a very big compliment, right? If you, someone tells you, man, you led that meeting and you were so long-winded, right? Like that's, that, that, that's not an encouraging, an encouraging thing. So, so Zophar is accusing Job because Job's response covers chapters 9 and chapter 10 in the book of Job. So, so he, he accused him of being long-winded. You talk a lot. You say, you're saying a lot of things. The second accusation that Zophar makes to Job is that he tried to silence good men. And the reason that he makes this accusation is because Eliphaz and Bildad, Job's other friends, are, are responding to Job. Just repent. You're, you know, the, uh, the, the issues that Job are facing is because of his sin. And since Job is saying, no, I don't, this isn't because of my sin, he's trying to silence the good men that's around him. And then the third thing 
that uh, Zophar, Zophar accuses Job of is that Job is ridiculing empty rhetoric. You see, Zophar basically begins by insisting that Job stop talking and listen to him. And after all, this speech, uh, like I said, follows a lengthy response from Job in, verse, in chapters 9 and 10. So Zophar continues and describes Job's speech, speech as a multitude of words, pointing out that, uh, that there were a lot of words and they lacked a lot of substance. Zophar goes on to also describe Job as a man full of talk. As one commenter, uh, commentator puts it, he says, Zophar describes Job as a verbose man, a glib, empty-headed man who likes the sound of his own voice too much. You see, Zophar then goes on, to, goes on to call Job's talk as babble or empty chatter, which is a very stern accusation because this is the same, uh, the same approach that, uh, that the Apostle Paul addresses the false teachers in Ephesus. We see, uh, we see at the end of this first section of Scripture that Zophar is confused about the situation which Job is enduring, which, uh, which is, I'm sorry, that Job is enduring, which brings us to our first point this morning, that Zophar confuses God's testing of faith with retribution. You see, imagine what Job is thinking while, his, uh, while he's listening to his friend address him in a rather stern manner. Job is still grieving. And now Zophar is attacking him, blaming the loss of Zophar's, uh, I'm sorry, the, the loss of Job's children on Job himself. Zophar even points out that Job is guilty of much more than he has been punished for. Uh, punished for. You see, when we see in verses 5 and 6, uh, Zophar says, But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Zophar is insisting that Job needs to be quiet and that God needs to speak. But you see, there are two problems that we see in this portion of Scripture. The first problem that we see is, uh, is, is, the, is uh, Zophar's theology is simply wrong. Zophar has the, has the incorrect view of theology that is revealed in this passage. Zophar just, uh, subscribes to the uh, theology of retribution. Which is, which is not supported throughout Scripture. But this idea is something that's called on um, and become increasingly more popular as the years go by. It's actually probably more prevalent than we even realize. You see, Zophar tells Job that not only uh, he deserved what he got, but he even deserved more. You see, Zophar is telling uh, a man that has lost his kids and, and a lot of property that he deserved to experience more pain. You see, the theology of retribution can easily sneak into our everyday uh, beliefs. You see, personally, this is something we experienced. This is many, many years ago, many, many states over from where we were currently at, but at a, at a previous place of ministry, there's a person that we knew that experienced quite a few traumatic experiences in a relatively short amount of time. She had been sick for some time. And I'm not talking about like a massive sickness, but she had this sickness that kind of put her down for a few weeks. And... And if you know any, I mean, if you're sick, maybe it's just me, but if you're sick for an extended period of time, you just feel, am I ever going to get better? Like, I just feel, this is terrible. So she's already down on herself, and then she finally, after, after a substantial amount of time, finally starts to get a little bit better, and, and then uh, once she started to feel better, she had a pretty substantial car wreck. And then to top it off, after a car wreck, she was, she was 
banged up and not really injured, but it wasn't a few days after a car wreck that she stepped off the side of a sidewalk and broke her ankle. She had a lot going on. There's a lot of things that she was experiencing at one point. But I remember a person within, uh, a, a, a person within her group, I remember, um, was quick to point out that they believed that she had unrepentant sin. She must be sinning. She needs to repent. And whenever you have a broken ankle and you're on crutches, going to shop for a car and your immune system still has you a little weak, that's probably not the right thing to say, right? It's probably a little, uh, pro- probably a little more blunt than you should be, and uh, not very helpful. You see, she pointed out she was she was quick to point out that this lady was in need to repent. And while many of us wouldn't be that blunt in that type of conversation, retribution theology is still easily made uh, made our way, made its way into our culture. You see, for some of us, it's known as karma. If you do something good, something good is going to happen to you, right? If you do something bad, then something bad is going to happen to you. I think we all can agree that going down uh, 72 at rush hour, you're kind of hoping for a little bit of, you know, someone cuts you off, you're like, oh, I hope you get what you've got coming, you know. It's not the case. You see, for others, it's the belief, it's kind of boiled down to uh, what goes around comes around. He'll get his or she'll get hers. Or the old saying, they get what they deserve. You see, the idea that God is waiting to punish us for every little thing that we have done is not correct. Neither the idea that we should have the good outweigh the bad in our life. If you recall, there was a, uh, at the beginning of this series, Job went through a lot of heartbreak that we covered. He went through a lot of traumatic experiences. And while Job was, in fact, a sinner, the trial he was enduring is going to be re- it has been revealed and will be revealed that uh, that he's not enduring this sin because of the sin in his life. In fact, to go a little further, to say that Job deserved even more than he had received is not only incorrect, but also for a, a brother or a friend speaking to a friend, it's also extremely cruel. Now, the second problem that we see, I said there were two problems with this section. The second problem that we see is that Job, uh, Job did make the claim to be innocent. We see in Job chapter 9, 15, if you flip over there, Job points out that I am in the right. If we go down to 20, he says the same, he makes a claim, it's the same claim. He's in the right in verse 21. He says, I'm blameless. In, verse, in chapter 10, verse 7, he points out that I am not guilty. What Job was saying about God, the situation he is in, which he found himself, is that uh, what he's saying about himself was true. Job is claiming to be innocent in a situation in which he's, fam- in which he's fam- uh, facing. However, Job never made the claim that he, that he, had, uh, that he were, was clean in the sense of being morally pure. Job never claimed to be sinless. Only, the only claim that he made was that he, were, that he was blameless. And that's actually something that God said about Job himself. So as we continue our passage, we get a clearer vision of who God is and how powerful he is. We go to our next section beginning in verse 7. So Zophar continues this, this response to Job. And verse 7 says, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can we do? Deeper than Sheol, what can we know? What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees inequity, um, 
will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild, a wild donkey's colt is born a man. You see, so far, even though his approach is inappropriate with Job, not everything he says is incorrect, which brings us to our second point this morning. Zophar reveals the incomprehensible nature of God, his authority, and his power over his creation. Even though Zophar takes the words of Job and distorts them, he does, he does offer a factual represent, representation of the nature of God. In verse 7, we see that Zophar speaks of the deep things of God as well as the, the limit of uh, of the Almighty, even though Zophar is still speaking words of condemnation to Job, what he's saying in this section is not only right, but it's also helpful for Job and helpful for us. By seeing the nature of God and coming to the realization that he is without limits, Zophar eloquently speaks of the fullness of the Godhead. In what some scholars call his personal sermon from Zophar to Job, we see that Zophar asks a set of rhetorical questions. He asks, "How?" Or he asks, "Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find the limit of the Almighty? Is it higher than heaven? What can you do? Deeper than Sheol? What can you know?" Zophar reveals something that is important about God's nature. God is someone that is that is too high, too deep, too long, and too wide for us to fully be able to grasp. And this is important because, because not everything that we experience is something that we're able to fully comprehend. These things that, uh, that God, is, that there are things that God's orchestrating that are, that's not even on our radar. In the book of Habakkuk, uh, the prophet addresses this very thing. Habakkuk 1 verse 5 says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe. If told. You see, God is on a completely different level than we are as, as his creation. He is perfect, his, and his creation has been riddled with sin. And being that God is perfect and demands perfection, and we are far from perfect, we are in need for a way back to God. You see, we're unable to earn our salvation, and we're unable to concoct a plan in order for us to earn our justification before a holy God. But God so graciously sent his son who lived the perfect life and died a sacrificial death so that those who believe in him, so that those that rest in him will have justification for their sin. If we go back and read verses 7 and 8, we see this. He says, he points out, says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is it higher than heaven? What can you do deeper than Sheol? What can you know? Zophar's response to Job here reveals something that is important, as, as important to Job as it is to us this many years later. Zophar points out our in, inadequacies um, that we face. Even in, in his skewed and limited understanding, he is able to identify that we are in desperate need of a Savior. The question is, who are we? The, we lack understanding and comprehension. We lack vision and wisdom. The first step to repentance is oftentimes despair. And it is, un, it, it is the unequivocal realization, admission, and acknowledgement that without Christ, we are lost. Pa, uh, author Dane Orton, he writes this. He says, 
fallen humans, human beings, enter into joy only through the door of despair. Fullness can be had only through emptiness. That happened decisively at conversion. As we confess our hopeless, sinful predicament for the first time and collapse into the arms of Jesus, and then remains an ongoing rhythm throughout the Christian life. This not only highlights that there's a drastic difference between God and between his creation, it also highlights that there is only one hope, and that's found through Christ himself. You see, we continue, or as we continue, we see that Zophar then transitions his language into a courtroom uh, scenario. I don't know about you guys, but for some reason, there are so many courtroom television shows on today. If you ever think about skipping work just to go watch the television programs, you're missing out. Like, there are countless uh, courtroom dramas. My mother, she's here this morning, so I'll get in trouble for this later. She loves them. Maybe not all of them, but she loves quite, quite a few of them. But her favorite is Judge Judy, right? Anyone want to admit some Judge Judy goes on in the house? Just last weekend, Emma was spending time with her nana, and uh, we FaceTimed her as we always do. We're like, hey, what you doing? Just watching Judge Judy. Like, I'm convinced that our daughter's going to become an attorney strictly because she has watched Judge Judy so often at my mom's house. But we see in verses 10 and 11, the legal language that Zophar uses in describing God, or describes God coming to earth and tossing Job in jail and holding a trial. And once a trial was in session, in verse 11, Zophar reminds Job that God is not stupid. He continues to reveal more about God's nature you see, God knows the, a different, the difference between a uh, wicked man and a righteous man. He knows the difference between an, an evil action and a righteous one. And even though we can see Zophar's response here with Job, it is easy to see that while it might not be extremely helpful for, for Job, Zophar still expounded on the nature of God. Now let's turn our attention to the rest of chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. And Zophar continues his response. If you prepare your heart, will, uh, uh, will, uh, you will uh, stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish, and you will secure and will not fear, and you will not forget your misery. You will remember it as waters have, that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its, its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. And you will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. This brings us to our final point this morning. Zophar reveals the importance of repentance and highlights the dreadful life of the unrepentant. Zophar, just like the other two friends of Job, believe that Job's problem is a result of Job's sin and that he is in need of repentance. We know that this is terrible, uh, this terrible heartbreaking occasion that Job is facing is not a a sin issue, but Zophar, but had Zophar been correct, then repentance would be necessary for Job. 
In verses 13 and 14, we see how genuine repentance takes place. Zophar reveals that we are to prepare, prepare your heart, which basically means to acknowledge God as God. Zophar goes on to say, stretch, your, stretch out your hands toward him, revealing that as sinners we are in need of God's mercy. Zophar says, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Repent means to turn, you know, to turn from sin. He's, uh, this means to stop engaging in sin. And then the last thing that we see as an action of repentance is to let not injustice dwell in your tents, which basically equates to hold your house accountable. Don't let sin just actively take place within your home. You see, Zophar then describes the benefit of repentance, which leads to restoration. And what Zophar says is true. Repentance is correct, is the correct response for sin. But repentance is not enough. We can, repent and, uh, we can repent and turn from our sin, but that's not, what, uh, that's not what matters the most. You see in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now after Jesus was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is not enough. It's easy to repent to someone, and uh, we, we, we do that frequently. Whenever you mess up, you, hey, sorry about that, and that's where it can end, right? Repentance isn't enough. Jesus tells us to repent and believe in the gospel. The idea that Christianity is free from suffering um, is, uh, is, is, is incorrect. You see, there's going to be suffering that takes place in our lives. The, uh, the, the fact, this fact is promised throughout Scripture. And being that Job's devastation was not a result of unrepentant sin, repentance was not the correct prescription. In fact, the story of Job highlights something that's important for the believers to know, that we are not promised a trial-free life on this side of eternity. Things are not promised to be easy. The Apostle Paul, while writing to the church of Philippi from prison, in chapter 3, Paul writes that, the sufferings that, uh, writes that the sufferings that he had endured was because of Christ. In John 15, 20, it says, remember, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, Jesus says. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we're reminded that, there is, uh, that, that we should not be surprised as believers when trials occur. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, indeed, uh, indeed, all who desire to live, live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's not something we really want to uh, um, dwell on or think about, right? It's not something that we really want to think often of, like, oh, yeah, we're going to be persecuted. You see, being that, that, uh, that all Christians, all Christ followers will suffer and will experience hardships, it's imperative that we base our theology on Christ and not on our emotional response. You see, that's why we look to, uh, that's why we look to scriptures and, and look to Christ and his teachings, not our present circumstances for our theological understanding and how we are to have joy in Christ. You see, John Piper he writes this, he says, Consider Christ so precious, so valuable, such a great treasure, that whether in prison 
or in affliction or in poverty, knowing him and belonging to him and being with him forever gives you joy. You see, as, uh, as you, many of you know, if you recall back a few months ago, uh, I received a call that no one really wants to receive. I received a call that my dad had collapsed and then followed up with a call that my dad had passed away. And my dad was a man that I looked up to my entire life. He loved the Lord. He loved his family. He was very active, um, not only in his church, he was very active in my life and my siblings' life and within our family. So when he passed, uh, it, it, it shook our family to its core. But it's also important to know that we have no doubt that my dad's passing is part of a much larger sovereign plan of God. You see, if I can be candid with you, over the past few months have been really hard. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about wanting to call my dad. But praise the Lord that my theological understanding is not set on my emotions. You see, if they were set on my, if, if our theological understanding is set on our emotions, then we would be debating at times, does God even care? Now, I know that I'm not the only one that's lost a family member recently. There are others that are experiencing this same type of hardship, this same type of, of trial. And there are other hardships that are being, uh, that, are the, that individuals are going through um, this very moment. You see, when our theology is based on Christ and his word, rather than, the belief, than our belief that we're being punished by God, we're able to rest in knowing that our hardship and that our suffering is part of a much bigger sovereign plan of God that ultimately brings him glory. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, gives us this clarity. It says, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and for those who, he, who are called according to his purpose. We are able to have hope knowing that God's plan for the believer is for his glory and for our good. As we close out our time this morning, we want to look back at verse 20 in uh, chapter 11 because Zophar is very direct and something very important for us to see. Zophar reveals the fate of the unrepentant sinner the unrepentant, uh, wicked man. For those that are unrepentant sinners, there is a massive, there's a contrast that is very important that we see from those that are rescuing Christ. For those that are unrepentant, they are lost, and there's no, there's no possibility for escape. And their life is no better than what they're experiencing on this side of eternity. Verse 20 says, but the, way, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. You see, this last verse of the chapter so far clarifies what it looks, what a life apart from God or apart from Christ looks like. You see, the unrepentant can only can only expect suffering. The unrepentant can only endure a life that lacks hope. Being that we have sin-cursed heart, being that we are naturally wicked, this serves as a warning that a life apart from Christ is a life that will ultimately result in death, will result in a life that is never better than what we're experiencing on this sin-cursed earth right now. 
You see, in closing, we see that the, the truths about God should always be used to teach others and not taunt them, as Zophar does. God's Word is something that should be used to build up others and not belittle them. And even, even though that Zophar said, uh, what Zophar said about God was accurate, what he said to Job about God was cruel and evil. As one commentator describes, Job was his punching bag and solid theology his gloves. By removing Job's situation, Zophar teaches that it's impossible to fully comprehend God and to fully comprehend his wisdom. As believers, those that are resting in the finished work of Christ, we are, we are to live lives that are quick to repent. As Martin Luther states in the first of his 95 theses, he writes, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Even though we're called to live lives of repentance, um, we're not going to do that perfectly. And by God's grace, for those that are resting in the finished work of Christ, our best days are not in the present. Our best days are ahead of us when we are able to be in the presence of God for an eternity. And by God's grace, that's not held secure by us. It's not held secure by our works. The eternity of the believer is held secure by Christ, who will forever be our steady anchor. Let's pray.